Thank you again, Gary Men Team Church. That's a beautiful, beautiful song. How perfect, how wonderful, how uh, comprehensive it takes the scope of the Christmas story, um, the gospel message beyond what would even be the traditional portion that is the focus. Uh, to be sure, the babe born in the manger is beautiful, an essential part of the Christmas story. But as we sang, that is not the end of the story. It's a reminder that those beautiful, sweet little baby hands and wrists were born so that one day nails would be driven through them. That beautiful little perfect baby skull would have thorns driven into it one day. That perfect little baby back would be shredded. Um, it's about the cross. And even as we sang, it's about my sin. There are at least two elements, two aspects of the Christmas story, the gospel message. We need to remember both. Beloved, with that in mind, please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. The book of Hebrews, beloved, oozes with grace. The goodness, the forgiveness of sin, the sacrifice for sin that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the Son of God in human form, provided on our behalf. It oozes with grace and it is pierced through with veins of wrath and judgment and warning. Uh, beloved, the book of Hebrews, the author is relentless in not letting us become numb and blind to God's wrath, God's holy wrath and God's righteous judgment. Um, certainly, we like the warm and pleasant and fuzzy message at Christmas, but we do know there are two sides. And even the gift of salvation loses its value if we don't understand the whole picture. Our passage this morning is Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31. This is just ever so slightly outside the veil of a normal Christmas message. The next two Sundays, the 18th and the 25th, we'll have more of the traditional Christmas message. This is just a continuation of where God providentially has us here. This is a divine appointment. This is the appointed hour that God has for us here this morning in his word. And what we have here is a haunting passage with severe and striking warning. This is the fourth of the great warnings that God gives through the author of Hebrews. And these warnings are there, these veins of wrath, judgment, and warning are there throughout the entire Bible, including the book of Hebrews, and they're always counterbalanced by wonderful promises. Beloved, follow along as I read Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 26. This is the word of God. Four. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, 
Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is the word of God, beloved, that has been read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, before I even expand and expound and explicate any more, as we read these words, they don't really smell like gingerbread lattes. No matter how many poinsettias or poinsettia that we have out in the lobby, no matter how many wreaths we have up here, this doesn't seem like a Christmas spirit message. But again, beloved, this is an essential part. If we don't have the full picture, then the true Christmas message, the true Christmas spirit, the true gospel story will not make sense. If you're here as a visitor this morning, we are blessed and thrilled to have you here with us. Again, this is God's divine appointment. This is the appointed hour for you and for us as well. Now, what we see when we look in this passage, and again, we're going to focus on the text that we have here, which is the great warning. Even at the end, I will certainly bring in some of the words of promise, but we'll finish out those two, the next two weeks. This morning, however, in these six verses, what we see are two marks of apostasy. Now, what we have here are these blistering words of rebuke blistering words of concern from the heart of this author, pastor, preacher as he wrote this letter, as God writes this to you and to me. And what he's talking about here is not garden variety sin. And what I mean by that, even when we think of like some of the biggies, we can think of murder and adultery. We can think of King David, who was a man after God's own heart, yet he committed the horrific sins of adultery and murder. Yet he did, we know from Psalm 51, have true repentance. Now what this is talking about here, this is talking about apostasy. This is talking about a man or a woman. This is a warning against anyone, even as the original audience that was on the heart of the human author of this letter that would deliberately move from open belief to open disbelief. That would, as the text says, in a sense, trample underfoot, step on the neck of Jesus Christ. This is talking about willful, deliberate, callous, no concern, continued, unrepentant sin. And what we see here in our text are two marks of apostasy, willful sin and terrible judgment. And they are interwoven, as is very often the case, as the author writes to this group of Hebrews, as this Hebrew, most likely Hebrew author, writes to these Hebrew congregation with more of a circular type of reasoning than we're used to in our Occidental linear type of reasoning, we see these interwoven through these. But first we begin with this willful sin that we see in verse 26. Look at the text. He says, for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, So right there at the beginning, we have that little preposition for that tells us and that takes us back to what we saw before. We know that Hebrews 1, 1 through 10, 18, the author has this great emphasis on laying out deep doctrines of truth and of the wonder of the doctrines of grace and the teaching that lay a foundation. Then in chapter 
10 verse 19, he pivots and for the rest of the letter will have a greater emphasis on applying those truths. But when we read the word for there, that's drawing our attention back, certainly to the entire letter, uh, certainly with a great emphasis beginning on the application in verse 19. But let me just remind us from verse 24 and 25 for the immediate previous reference. The author there says, let us consider let us think hard how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day, the day of the Lord, the day of reckoning. The day of the Lord, in the same way as the gospel message, in the same way as the Christmas story, the day of the Lord has two aspects, two dimensions. There is a joyful, positive aspect of the fulfillment and culmination for God's children. And there is also and will be an outpouring and a day of reckoning for those that die in their sin, not in Christ. It's a reminder to us to be careful what we ask for. And even as we hear this heartbeat of the author with his concern about if we go on sinning willfully, we know that he's talking about, again, callous, deliberate, willful, unconcerned sin in general, any kind of continual unrepentant sin of no concern, but the nearest antecedent sin was this forsaking the assembling of together, the abandoning the congregation. What the author is saying is, that abandoning the congregation, while may seemingly be innocuous, may be symptomatic of a far more serious condition. But the word here that we focus on is willfully. This is the word that keys us in. He's talking about not just a garden variety of a type of sin. This is malicious and spiteful sin. To be sure, against one another, against former people that would have been counted as brothers and sisters in Christ, but far more egregious, far more grievous. It's malicious and spiteful towards God. By way of illustration, it's the same type of dynamic in the days of Moses. For example, in uh, Numbers, Numbers 15, verse 30, Moses, under the inspiration of God, wrote these words. He said, this was to the nation of Israel under the Old Covenant, the person who does anything defiantly, that's the key word there. Whether he's a native or an alien, whether he's a Jew or Gentile, that one is blaspheming the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people. And even as we read earlier back in verse 26 that we just read, it's after receiving the knowledge of the truth. And the knowledge here, this is an intensified form of the Greek word knowledge. It means an experiential knowledge. He's not talking about somebody that just has a mere head knowledge, some seminary professor or intelligent American that kind of knows the gospel and even knows many different aspects, but someone that had an experience with it, someone who enjoyed at the outward level the fellowship of the saints, at the external level maybe even served, maybe even was a leader, perhaps a deacon, an elder, a pastor, maybe a Titus II woman, perhaps even for months and months, perhaps even for years, yet is now turning away and rejecting the truth, the body of doctrine 
that God gives us in his word by which we are saved. It was said that the hottest hell is reserved for those who have received the greatest light. The Puritan Thomas Watson said, it's not falling into sin that damns. It's lying in sin, abiding in sin without repentance that damns. It's wallowing in sins would be a paraphrase of it. In, in the same way, pigs love to just wallow in the mud. This is the kind of person that once at least made a profession of wanting to walk the way of righteousness for the glory of God and for his or her own joy for the blessings of others that now is wallowing and enjoying rebelling against God. Beloved, dear friend, if we would not die in our sins, then we cannot live in our sins. And never, this is a main point here, never dear friend, underestimate the enemy of your soul, which is what sin is, what missing God's mark of righteousness, of transgressing the boundaries that God gives us clearly in the pages of Scripture. And what he says is the one that, after receiving the knowledge of truth, uh, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, is what he continues here. If the one turns away from that, rejects that, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And what he's saying here is, there's only one sacrifice. Under the old covenant, there were many sacrifices, even ordained by God, but those many sacrifices of the old covenant couldn't cleanse the conscience. They were done at the earthly level. There was only one sacrifice by which men and women, Jew and Gentile, young and old, can be forgiven of their sin. There's only one sacrifice, only one blood that was shed that was carried into heaven and even intercedes on our behalf even now. And what the author is saying is there's no other sacrifice, there's no other way. This is the same kind of language that Jesus said. Remember John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father but through me. I was blessed immensely this week to spend an hour and a half Monday morning with a, a wonderful gentleman from the LDS, from the Mormon church. And this is one of the passages that we went over in that time. There is no other sacrifice. There is no other way. And what the author here is concerned about is that one who would seemingly be on this path, on this way, rather than enduring in faith, he has abandoned the faith to pursue sin. He or she has rejected the only valid sacrifice and turned his back on the only one who can save him. As I mentioned, this is the fourth of these great warnings. Do you remember the first? Back in chapter 2, verse 3. The author there wrote, <clears throat> How shall we escape if we neglect, if we ignore, if we set aside so great a salvation? And the answer is, it's a rhetorical question, is we can't. We can't escape if we neglect that one and only great salvation. There's no other way. There's no escape. There's no hope. There's no forgiveness. There remains no sacrifice if we neglect that. And even that is a reminder to me that I am a great sinner. 
Um, so that you don't think I'm like disqualifying myself up here. I'm not as great of a sinner as I was prior to being saved. By God's grace and mercy, I'm not as great of a sinner as I was five years ago. But before a holy, perfect, righteous God, I am a great sinner. And that's why I need, we need a great salvation brought solely and only by a great Savior. That is what is at the heartbeat of chapter 2 and even here in chapter 10. And the author continues, verse 27, look at it. He says, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment. So it's an either or. Either, conversely stated, there remains a sacrifice of sin, but on the other hand, the alternative is a certain terrifying expectation of judgment. This is here where even early on we move from the willful sin to the terrifying judgment. And this word terrifying, this is another uh, intensified form of the regular word for fear. This word, Greek word here, appears only three times in the New Testament. It appears here and then in verse 31. So actually the author brackets this Christmas passage, spoken semi-tongue-in-cheek, with this word terrifying. And then it appears later in chapter 12. Terrifying. It's only three times in the New Testament, but what's fascinating, this word is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for a Hebrew word that very often means awesome. In fact, Deuteronomy 10, verse 17, you'll read these words. The Lord your God, Yahweh your Elohim is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. Same word as terrifying. So, beloved, when we think of the word awesome, similar to the gospel message, similar to the Christmas story, awesome has two aspects, two dimensions. There's the patience, long-suffering, grace, mercy, dimension of the awesomeness of God, and there is the wrathful hatred of sin and righteousness and justice and judgment as well. Now, this kind of gives new meaning to the 80s 7-Eleven song, Our God is an awesome God who reigns. That's good words, and to be sure, there are different dimensions. There's a fuller picture even of the awesomeness of God. But back here, beloved, in Hebrews 10, 26 through 31, this is an awesome text. This is a terrifying text with the most terrifying thought in the universe, which is the terrifying, furious fire of the wrath of God. Look at the end of verse 27. And the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Uh, Similar to what the author does throughout the entire book, this is another quote from the Old Testament, from the Bible that they had at that point in time, from Isaiah 26, verse 11, uh, which reads, O Lord, your hand is lifted up, yet they don't see it. They see your zeal for the people and are put to shame. Indeed, fire will devour your enemies. Oh, it's interesting God's judgment, God's punishment, God's wrath is pictured and illustrated, and he even uses different objects and elements uh, in that to display throughout Scripture. But fire is the most commonly used one by God. It's the best suited picture in many ways of God's judgment. And what he says here is it will consume, eat up the adversaries. 
Beloved, dear friend, there is no adversary equal to a traitor. Even when we think of apostasy, we think of apostates, we can think of the prime example of apostasy, which is the son of perdition, Judas. Judas Iscariot, who walked with Christ, who sat and heard him teach for three years. He was the treasurer because he was a thief and he loved money. So though he made that profession, though he walked that walk, though he walked in the footsteps of the Messiah, he loved his sin, he loved his greed, he loved his lust, he loved his pride more than he loved his Lord. And that is the picture, that is a reminder that there is no adversary equal to a traitor. Also, this tells us, and this is one of those passages that can be confusing even to believers. So, are, are, does God hold on to those that are his? Does he save to the end? Does he adopt a son or daughter into his family and then kick them out because they sin? Or what is at stake here? This is a reminder that spiritual interest and spiritual excitement is not equal to. It's not the same as regeneration as true salvation, as true birth. And we can think of the parable Jesus gave of the seed that was thrown on the different soils. And there was a seed that was thrown on the shallow soil, which had an initial outburst of life. But then when the sun and the persecution came, it burned that away and it didn't prove to be true. And there are other examples as well. And perhaps the central verse for me that helps us understand this dynamic here, <clears throat> and I even shared this with a brother and sister in the uh, Cafe 242, do we still call it Cafe 242? The half an hour in between? Uh, anyway, our fellowship time, our coffee fellowship, you know, the most important ministry. Sorry, I'm digressing from digressing here. Any event, in the half an hour in between services, I shared with a brother and sister out in the courtyard that 1 John 2.19 helps explain this. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order to show that they are all not of us. That is what is the dynamic here. No matter the years, no matter the service, no matter the external demonstration, profession, and showing, God is concerned with what is on the inside. And time and truth do march hand in hand. And beloved, dear friend, the reality is that heaven will be filled with people that understand the gospel at a head knowledge level. People who, by profession, place themselves in a position of Christianity outwardly, but they're still spiritual outsiders, pretending to be inside while they're really outside looking in. The Puritan William Gurnall, you may remember him if you're here through Ephesians, he's the one that had the 1,100-page commentary on Ephesians. William Gurnall said this, quote, none sink so far into hell as those who come nearest to heaven because they fall from the greatest height. And the reality is when we think of this dual dimension and aspect of the Christmas story is that when people think of God, even the ones that would say there is a God, they consider God as somebody that they would thank briefly when there's a close call and question thoroughly when there's some kind of disappointment or tragedy. They can imagine God is the one that causes rain to fall on the farmer, but won't consider the fact God is the one that causes flooding. 
And what we have here, though, is more to the point, is, dear friend, understand this. When it comes to sin, when it comes to rebellion, especially of this inner betrayal kind of sense, God is not just a little bit angry. This is a picture of our God. This is our God. This is the God. This is the God we worship. And one question that we can ask even in the context of this alternative is, when is God like this, this consuming fury of fire? And the answer is in the text. Either, and I mentioned this briefly before, either there remains a sacrifice for sin. There remains a sacrifice for sin for the man or the woman that is truly in Christ, that is truly worshiping him in spirit and in truth, that is truly trusting in Christ alone by faith alone. There remains a sacrifice for sins, or there is the terrifying judgment of a wrathful, omnipotent, fiercely angry God with unpropitiated wrath over unexpiated sin. We continue on. Verses 28 and 29, the author gives an illustration from the Old Covenant, from the Old Testament, and then an application following it. He says, verse 28, look at it. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses, anyone who's rejected, nullified, denied, ignored, regarded as nothing, the law of Moses, the, the Bible, the Old Testament, the law of Moses, dies, the verse continues, without mercy, on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Uh, A couple words on that. The principle of two to three witnesses is throughout the entire Bible. It's laid out primarily in the Torah in the first five books of the Bible. It continues on even into the New Testament. Uh, One particular passage that would come and perhaps was very likely on the author's mind is in Deuteronomy 17. In verses 2 through 6, where the author basically, where Moses basically says from God that those who commit idolatry, they are subject to capital punishment, to execution. And it has to be on the basis of two or three witnesses. Somebody couldn't have just a false claim. It had to be verified. And what that was describing was the physical death, the physical death. You see, under the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, there were various capital punishment sins, murder. In fact, murder, capital punishment, was established by God for the crime of murder all the way back in Genesis 9 with Noah when they came off the ark. Uh, That is the one sin in the New Testament, according to Romans 13, that is still subject to capital punishment. But for God's unique dealing with the nation of Israel, there were many different sins beyond murder. There was adultery, bestiality, homosexuality, Rebellious children, all of these, if people, idolatry, again, if people worshiped Molech, they would be put to death with no mercy, based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, this is describing physical death. There could, one would imagine, and I'm sure there were cases, we don't know what they were, they're not recorded in scripture, but there certainly could have been a situation where somebody committed one of those sins in the nation of Israel and then had true spiritual repentance and could have even been saved, but they were still executed, they were still facing the physical death without mercy is what was given in the Old Testament that the author cites here. To help us understand this a little bit, I remember when I was in uh, seminary in, Cal- in uh, Southern California and there was a death row inmate in Texas 
that was interviewed by Grace to You because God had saved him on death row. And as typical in the United States, death row lasted years and years and years. And he had many years on death row to grow in the Lord, to read Spurgeon. And I remember the testimony he gave in the radio program talking about God's grace and goodness. And I remember the interviewer asked him, at one point towards the end, what about this punishment? What about this upcoming execution? Which he actually was executed about four or five months after the interview. And his response was, it's a just sentence. He knew he had, he was forgiven by God. He was born twice so that he would only die once. He knew that over him, the second death, the eternal death, the spiritual death had no power. The same situation would be there. So what was given by God in Deuteronomy 17 was the physical death, and that is what the author is bringing out here. He says he dies without mercy. Uh, the author applies this as he applies this Old Covenant, Old Testament principle to us in the New Covenant, in the New Testament. He is going from the physical to the spiritual. What he's saying is this is when the God of mercy extends no mercy. What the author is saying, the application is, to reject Christ is to reject all the mercy there is. Paul, when Paul wrote his second letter captured in Scripture to the church in Corinth, in 2 Corinthians 1, 3, Paul said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercy, and God of all comfort, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. That is the mercy that will be absent on the one who tramples underfoot the Son of God. Verse 29, and this is where the author applies it. This is where he moves explicitly from the physical death to the infinitely more severe spiritual death. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve? You see, the nation of Israel under the Old Covenant, they had the promise, but they didn't have the fulfillment. The Jew and Gentile in Christ, in the church, we have the promise, and on this side of Calvary, we have the fulfillment. So we have the greater privilege. Therefore, we have the greater responsibility. That is what the author is bringing out. And in fact, this is the same kind of teaching, same kind of dimension that Jesus brought. In Luke chapter 12, Luke was telling the people, he was telling his audience, his true disciples and the people that were listening, saying, look, don't be afraid of the Roman authorities. Don't be afraid of even the Israeli authorities. Don't be afraid of people who have the authority to kill you, to give you a physical death, to execute you. And then in verse 3, Luke 12, he says, I will tell you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed you, has authority to cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. That's the teaching. Those are the words of Jesus himself. That is what is at the concern, the passion of the author of Hebrews here in our text. And beloved, even these strong words, again, bring out a fuller picture as we sang, as the men sang so wonderfully in that song just before. It's about the cross. It's about my sin, I think, is one of the words, some of the words that we sang. As we look at verse 29, just in brief, there's really what we could call three steps towards apostasy that manifest in this dynamic. Step number one 
is to think less of Christ. He says, it is one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God. Literally, like stepping his foot on the neck of Jesus. But he doesn't say Jesus here. He doesn't say Christ. In, at this point, almost at the end of chapter 10, we've seen Jesus, we've seen Christ, we've seen Jesus Christ. But do you remember the first title of the second member of the Trinity the author opens up the book with in chapter 1? The Son of God. What he's saying here is the law of Moses, which was the Bible they had before the New Testament, or at least a portion of it, but representing, uh, it would be a representative of all of it. That is one thing. How much more severe punishment now that we're talking not the law of Moses, but the Son of God, the final word, the full revelation, the best revelation there is, is what he says in chapter 1. The one whom angels in heaven worship. It's like the person is effectively trampling him underfoot and stepping on his neck. In chapter 6, verse 6, here in Hebrews, in one of the earlier warnings, he talked about putting him to open shame, holding him up to contempt. Again, this is one who has moved from open, professed belief to open, professed, virulent unbelief. Think less of Jesus. Think less of sin. That's step number two. And has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. Uh, by which he was sanctified. The New American Standard has a lowercase h there for the he. It would have been a better translation if they'd done an uppercase. Um, just by way of reminder, in the original languages, both Hebrew and Greek, there were no chapter divisions, there were no verses, there was no punctuation, there was no capitalization. Those are always a decision on the part of the translators. And when we look at this, the he by which he was sanctified, the nearest antecedent, the person right before, is the Son of God. And in the context, the next immediately following dimension is insulting the Spirit of grace. And even Jesus himself talked about how he is sanctified, how he is set apart for your blessing, for my blessing. John 17, verse 19, for their sakes, Christ said in his uproom discourse, for their sakes, I sanctify myself so that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. And even as we think of this once for all sacrifice that is a prevalent theme of Hebrews, especially chapter 9 and 10, and the power of his blood, like back in chapter 9, verse 12, where the author says, it's not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. What the author here in verse 29 is saying is this apostate is rendering and considering that blood that was carried into heaven as unclean, literally as common, something to just be thrown away. Beloved, <clears throat> dear friend, to trivialize, the trivialization of the holy destroys the world and it destroys one's salvation. And then there's a third step at the end of verse 29, as and has insulted the spirit of grace. Some translations say it has outraged the spirit of grace. What the author is saying is it's one thing to begin with Jesus. It's another to keep on keeping 
with Jesus, but you must maintain him to the end. Those who truly belong to God will maintain the profession to the end. Not perfectly. There can be backstepping. There can be sins to be sure but that's not the kind of dynamic we're talking here we can think of you men that have been at our men's breakfast our men's big breakfast we have people give a testimony and when we give our testimonies in the men's big breakfast or even i'm sure in uh, the ladies uh, ministries when women give their testimonies it's not merely about some event that took place in the past it's about what christ what the indwelling holy spirit is doing in our lives now that's the dynamic the author of hebrews god has in his mind because beloved because dear friend we know how easily our eyes often wander how easily our feet often readily tread the paths of iniquity and the message of hebrews is the best way to fight sin is to love Christ. You began with Jesus. Keep on keeping on with Jesus and end with Jesus. And then finally, in verses 30 and 31, again, willful sin and terrible judgment are interwoven, but the focus here is on the terrible judgment. Look at verse 30. He says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. These are quotes from Deuteronomy 32, from the Song of Moses, from Moses' farewell address to the people of Israel. Uh, This is also quoted by Paul. When Paul was writing to the church in Rome, he quoted this, and he first gave even an application to the Christians in Rome around this vengeance is mine statement of the Lord. In Romans 12, verse 19, the Apostle Paul, by way of application, says... Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So the author lays out this illustration, this application we got from the Apostle Paul from uh, Deuteronomy 32. And what he is saying as we move to verse 31 is personal rejection of God will lead to personal retribution by God. The personal rejection of man leads to the personal retribution of God. Verse 31, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The same hands that uphold the righteous will punish the wicked. And it's the hands of the living God, not lifeless idols, not false gods that have no power. And far from escaping from God, the apostate, one who turns his back or her back on Christ, may think they're escaping God, but far from escaping, they fall into the hands of the living God. He or she has abandoned his Savior only to meet his judge. And Beloved, in Scripture, the wrath of God is terrible. You can think of Revelation, the wrath of God, when it will be poured out in the end times. But here, there is a very personal nature. He falls into the hands of the living God. This is a picture of the terrible impotence of bits of rebel creature dust in the hands of the infinite creator God. 
Dear friend, this is a matter of eternal horror. The, those who reject the Son have every reason to fear the Father. In Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress, in the final episode of the first part of the book, uh, the character Ignorance is condemned to hell when he asks to be admitted into the celestial city, but he doesn't have the certificate. Uh, we read in the story that rather than going on the prescribed path by God to receive the certificate, which is received by faith alone in Christ alone, he didn't go through the wicket gate, W-I-C-K-E-T, not, not D, but he climbed over a fence, and he went on the crooked path, and he came up to the men at the gate, asked to enter therein, and they said, well, where is your certificate? He said, I don't have one. He said, I know the king. I heard him teach. I walked with him, but I don't have the certificate. So the two men went back to the king, and the king said, I don't know him. Cast him away, and Bunyan says the king bade the two shining ones that had ushered Christian and hopeful to the gate to take him and to cast him into hell. And Bunyan said at the end, then I saw that there was a way to hell even from the gates of heaven. Beloved, what the author of Hebrews is describing here in this passage is going to hell from the very doorstep of heaven. This is going to hell not from the gutter, but from the pew. That's the first dimension aspect of the gospel message, the Christmas story. The other one will be covered more in depth the next two weeks, but as the flower turns toward the sun, turn your heart towards the voice of God. Again, we find ourselves here by divine appointment. This is the appointed hour. The voice of man, of a mere man, is unable to convince, to convict, to convert, only the voice of God. That's why in Scripture, both the warning and the promise are set side by side. For example, Deuteronomy 32, the vengeance is mine passage of verse 35 is followed by these words in verse 36 of Deuteronomy 32. For the Lord will vindicate his people and will have compassion on his servants. In Nahum, Nahum chapter 1, verse 2, a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathfully, continues on for many verses. Then in verse 7, Nahum says, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. Beloved, dear friend, understand this. God has a special providence that watches over his children. In fact, Back in verse 25, here in Hebrews, besides the day of reckoning, God also had just told us to encourage one another. And in verses 32 through 39, we see this brought out. In verses 32 through 39, we are told what this true salvation looks like. And in verse 36, it tells us precisely where it comes from. Hebrews 10, verse 38, excuse me, verse 38, my righteous one shall live by faith. That's a quote from Habakkuk 2.4. That is the central element of the gospel message. That is the central backbone of the Christmas story. Salvation in faith alone, salvation by faith alone in Christ alone, through grace 
alone. By taking all our trust and hope and faith in ourselves or in any other system and figuratively or literally falling before the cross, asking Jesus for forgiveness, placing all your faith and trust in the babe that was born, that grew up as a man, that died on the cross and then rose from the grave. That is the free gift of salvation that is the other essential aspect of the gospel message and the Christmas story. That is the reason for the season. That is what we celebrate. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for all of your Bible. Thank you, Lord, for these powerful words of warning. Thank you, Lord, that they are always followed by words of promise to those that would turn towards you, those that would seek you, those that would desire you. And Lord, we know that we only seek you because you first sought us. We love you, Lord Jesus, because you first loved us. Thank you for coming to earth. Thank you for your human life. Thank you for the humility of your birth in that manger, in that dusty stable. We pray that you're glorified in all that we do. And Lord, for those that are here this morning that are watching or those that listen or watch later on that aren't following you as Lord and Savior, we pray, Lord, that you would bless them, strengthen them, let them come to you, put faith in their heart, put repentance in their mind, let them turn from their sin and follow you. And we praise you and thank you that you promise that anyone that comes to you, you will adopt them into, their, into your family, into the beloved, and make them a new creature. We pray that there would be a great harvest this season, not just this church, but every Bible-believing church, every Bible-believing witness around the world for your glory and for the eternal joy of your children. Amen.